maybe I'll just ask, does anybody know the vision of Charter Oak Church? Yeah, the mission's right back there, but the vision of, of Charter Well, that's what we're about, to make disciples who make disciples. But the vision, I heard it over here, to infuse passion for Jesus into the people of Westmoreland County, or really southwest Pennsylvania. We want to create passion for Jesus here. And the mission is on that banner back at the Connect table, twofold, to reach out to those who are searching and to equip believers to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. So we want to bring the gospel to people who don't know it and, bring, and help them to know the love of Jesus. But we also want to grow the people who do know Jesus to go deeper in their faith, to be more obedient to the call and to do what God's calling us to do here on earth. As I said before, salvation's the beginning of the path, not the end. And so that's what we're about. Today we're starting a new series. I told you a little bit about it last week. It is really just a, just a Bible study. We're going to do a Bible study on the book of 1 John. Not the Gospel of John, although we'll look in there a little bit. We're going to look at the book of 1 John. And we have some goals and, and things that we want to achieve by doing this and, and kind of going back to like Bible study roots on this. One of the goals is to just equip you to read and to study the Word of God. There's a lot of us who have studied the Word of God for a long time, and we're kind of comfortable with that. We, we have a procedure. We know kind of how to begin. We know where to find help if we need help understanding some things. And we've been studying for a while, and we can make progress. But there's a lot of us also who see that Bible as a big, thick volume of poetry and history and instruction and all kinds of different books and by different authors throughout the years. And it's intimidating. It can be really intimidating. And so we're hoping that if we kind of go through this as, it is in, as, it, as a Bible study, that it will maybe help you, those of you who find it intimidating, to know how to start to maybe know how to, 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 to start studying the Word of God. We want to do it in community in this thing. We want to do it together to avoid false teaching because that is helpful in that. If you study the Bible with other people, you're more likely to get to the truth of things, okay? And that we would end up delighting in God's Word. We talk about it in our triad all the time. When we have Bible reading to do, how easy it is to make that a to-do item on your list. To, to make it like, okay, read my Bible, check, I'm out the door. Or, oh man, I still have to read the Bible three chapters today. Okay, here we go. How much do you get out of that? How much do you get out of it when you're reading the Bible that way? And, but it's so easy to fall into that kind of thing. But I want to get to the place that I believe God wants every one of us to be, where we delight in God's Word, where we, go, we look forward to opening it and seeing what God might say to us through the Holy Spirit. Because the Word says the Bible is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit. It is spiritually discerned. The one who does not have the Spirit, that is, people who do not know Jesus, cannot receive the treasures in the Word of God because they're spiritually discerned. So as children of God, there's all kinds of treasures for us in the Word of God. And so I want us to delight in it. Look at Psalm 1, 1 through 2. It expresses this. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. I would love to be in that place, wouldn't you? 
Wouldn't he love to just like delight in his word? So that's one goal is to just get us comfortable in studying God's word and then to move from a place of biblical um, illiteracy to a biblical worldview. A lot of us don't really know what the Bible says about a lot of stuff. And so in studying it, in reading it, we come to the place where we do know that and we start to look at the world through the filter, through the lens of the truth of God. Because we're bombarded every day, right, with different philosophies, uh, different, uh, p- different things telling us how we should be, how we should act, how, how we should accept or not accept things. The Word of God is our lens through which to filter all that, to make the right and godly decisions. Now, we're going to discover in the book of 1 John that many people were deceived. Many people were deceived, and I don't mean just people who didn't know about Jesus. I mean people who thought they were Christians, but who actually weren't. And to me, that petrifies me. That is scary. That is scary. There's many schemes by the devil that are used. We talked about them last week, and we talked about spiritual warfare, that are used to distract us, to take us away from the will of God, from the plan of God in our lives. One of them is doubt. And the most common thing we doubt is our own salvation or God's presence with us, his constant presence with us. If Satan can get us worrying about that, then we're not going to be doing the things God wants us to do because we're going to be all hung up on that doubt. Am I actually saved? Do I Have I received Jesus as Lord of my life? And so we need to be equipped to recognize those lies. And we do that through the word of God. That's how we recognize those lies, and we replace them with God's truth. Next, another goal is that we apply God's word to our ordinary everyday lives. We apply it. All the knowledge of what the Bible says in the world is useless if it doesn't cause life change. It's useless unless we, ca- we bring it into our lives and actually live it, actually change our lives and allow it to change our lives. I know a lot of people who are constantly in Bible studies, but I never see life change much in them. I have been one of them at times in my life. I may be that one of them again at some point in my life where I just enjoy learning, but then I don't apply it. And so we want to look at application as well as we, as we read God's Word and as we determine things. How does it apply to us? How does it change us? How does it change our outlook? Another goal is that we become comfortable writing in our Bibles. (laughs) I'm going to ask you to write in your Bible today. You don't have to. I I asked you last week maybe to buy a Bible that you're willing to write in. Some people think, no, it's sacred. I don't want to write in my Bible. But a Bible well used is well written in. You know, there's stuff that hits you. You underline it. The margins like have dates and times and events in your lives that you were struck by this particular part of the Scripture and how it ministered to you in that moment. A a messy Bible is a testament to God's Word working in your life. It really is. And so we're going to mark in our Bibles this morning. Um, And then finally, committing God's Word to your heart, memorizing Scripture, is something that uh, that you you may avoid, you may not want to do it, but I'll tell you what it does. If If you memorize God's Word, then when you're in the midst of trial, when you're in the midst of temptation, the Holy Spirit can bring those verses to your mind. 
And you can, as Jesus did when he was tempted in the wilderness, you can quote scripture to refute his schemes. Okay, the psalmist in, uh, in, in one, Psalm 119 says, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. It is a defense. It is a way to be strong. Okay, so some background on 1 John. 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John and Hebrews are the only books in the New Testament that don't specifically say who wrote them. Okay, they don't specifically say who wrote them. Um, the author of, of this book identifies himself as an eyewitness of Jesus' life. So that narrows down the focus a little bit. Okay, this, this was a person who, who was with Jesus, who saw him die, and was with him at the resurrection, who saw him resurrected. Now, the style and the terminology of 1 John, the way it's written, is really similar to the Gospel of John, uh, which we do know was written by John. And so we have that to compare to. Now, in John's Gospel, if we look at John's Gospel, the book of John, we're told that the author of John is the beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved. He had the most intimate relationship with Jesus of all the disciples. He was the one who leaned against Jesus at the Lord's Supper, at that final supper. Jesus entrusted his mother to John as he was being crucified. And John is also the guy who outran Peter to the tomb on Easter morning. He got there first, okay? These are keys to remember as we go on. So the beloved disciple is never named, but he has to be one of the inner three disciples. There were 12 disciples, but three that Jesus spent the most time with, Peter, James, and John. So we can narrow it down further to those three. And it isn't Peter, because John outran Peter on the, way to the, on the way to the tomb. And it isn't James, because according to Acts 12, James was put to death by King Herod about 10 years after Jesus was crucified. And the Gospel of John was written later than that. Okay, so it isn't James. So that leaves us with John as the most logical conclusion of who the beloved disciple was and the author of John and 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Then we get to why did he write this letter? Why did John write 1st John? Well, he tells us in 1st John, if we look at 1st John 5.13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He uses the phrase eternal life 10 times. He uses know or perceive almost 50 times. He wants people in the churches around him to know that they have eternal life, and he wants us to know that too. I don't know about you. I don't know if you were one and done on your trip to the altar to give your life to Jesus. I was not. I was not. I probably went to the altar 15 to 20 times in the first half of my life because I would look at the way I behaved and I would think, I, I can't possibly be Jesus' disciple. I'm still sinning, which is an erroneous thought, right? We're all sinners. We still continue to fall. But that brought me to the altar many, many times. And finally, uh, up at my in-law's cabin in Arizona on uh, December 27th of 1991, I said, this is it. This is it. I'm going to the altar. Satan, shut up because I belong to Jesus, and I'm not going to worry about it again. And that is freeing. 
That is so freeing because that's one thing you don't have to worry about anymore. Your, your inheritance is sealed for you and kept in heaven, guaranteed. And so Satan can't have you. If you're a child of God, he can't have you. But he can sideline you. He can distract you. He can get you worrying about things. And I wanted to take that away from him. And that's why John is writing this. So let's get started. Today we're looking at four verses. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. So let's read this. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, you may already be noticing some, some themes in here. Seen, heard, looked at, touched, seen, heard, proclaimed, seen, heard, proclaimed. He's making a point, right? He's really making a point. So let's work at, look at verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. See, Jesus was there at the beginning. Not the beginning of the world, not the beginning of creation, the beginning. He was there. He had no beginning. He will have no end. He is not part of creation. Jesus is not a created being like Satan is. He is the source of all creation. All life, all things come through Jesus. So your first action today, your first action today is to circle the word beginning. There's an example on the screen. Circle the word beginning and write John, not 1 John, the gospel, John 1, 1 to 3 in your margin. So, Circle beginning and write John 1, 1 to 3 in the margin. And you might want to turn to the Gospel of John and keep a finger there because we're going to go back to the Gospel of John a couple times. And so just chapter 1, John chapter 1. Let's go to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3 right now. I love hearing the pages turn. Usually I hear touch screens going bing, 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 bing. That's fine too. John 1, verses 1 to 3. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. So action. In this passage, in John, circle beginning, both times it's used, and the example's on the screen and write 1 John 1, 1 in the margin. 1 John 1, 1. See, these are linked verses. We've connected the dots here. These verses support each other. And if you have a study Bible and you've always wondered what that tiny little print column in there with all kinds of other scriptures is listed there, those are called cross-references, and you have just made a cross-reference. 
Those cross-references are keyed to particular verses you're reading, and if you look, those verses will take you places that add to and help you understand the verse you're on right there. So that's what cross-references do. And here, 1 John 1.1 1, 1 and John 1, 1-3 support each other, enhance each other, and help us understand them better. So you've now connected the dots between these two. Now, back to 1 John 1, 1. Look at the verbs in the sentence, okay? The verbs that we have there, heard, seen, looked at, and touched, these verbs. I want to tell you about these verbs. In Greek, which I do not know, <laughs> I do not know, but thankfully there's helps that help us kind of understand some of it. There are different tenses to verbs, just like we have. We have past tense, we have present tense, we have future tense, all these kinds of tenses in English. Greek does too, only in st on steroids. There, there's a lot of tenses, and they're incredibly important. The first two verses here, heard and seen. And if you want to write this down, you can. You don't have to, but it's just interesting to me. They are in the perfect tense. They are in the Greek perfect tense. And what that means is these actions happened in the past, with importance and impact into the present. So it's in the past with, with present effects. In the past with importance now. So what he's saying is, we heard and what we heard stands. We saw and the effects of seeing continue. Okay, do you see that? How, how important that is in what they heard and read in, in the letter of First John? Then if we look at the next two verse, the verbs, the looked at and the touched, these are in the errorist tense. Errorist, it's A-O-R-I-S-T. A-O-R-I-S-T. They're the errorist tense, which is simply past tense. Okay, why didn't they just say that? No, it's errorist. Okay, but they're past tense. That means they looked at and they beheld with awe. If you want to write that in there, that looked at is a beheld with awe. In the past, they looked at the Lord, the person and the work of Jesus. In the past, they looked at him. And in the past, they touched the physical Jesus. But that heard and that seen have incredible impact into the present now. Even though it happened in the past, it has importance in the present. The apostles were actually given the opportunity to touch the Lord. They can't do that now. He's, he's ascended into heaven. But they did in the past. So the action here is to underline these words, if you haven't already. Underline heard, seen, looked, touched. Uh, there's an example on the screen. John is competing or is counteracting some competing teaching here. The teaching is, has been called Gnosticism. And what it is is that Jesus was a phantom. Jesus was a spirit. He wasn't a flesh and blood person. John is counteracting that teaching with this. And these words are going to be repeated as we go. I think you've heard, seen and heard, seen and heard a lot as we read that first uh, passage through. Now this gives incredible weight to John's writing, right? This gives incredible, um, um, what do you call it? I, I don't know, but it validates. It, it, it makes incredible validity of John's writing. He saw the Lord. He touched the Lord. He was with him. He is a first-person, reliable witness. And John is spending these first few verses establishing that. Okay? 
Verse 2. Verse 2. The life appeared. We have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Folks, this we call the incarnation. The incarnation, which is the act of being made flesh. This is the incarnation of Jesus. The life appeared. So, this, so the action here is to circle the word appeared and in the margin write incarnation. Incarnation. And you could even write the, the definition of that, the act of being made flesh, if you want, next to incarnation. But underline or circle appeared and write that just as something to remember. Now, if we go back to the Gospel of John, I told you we might go back there a couple of times, so hopefully you got your finger there in chapter 1 of John. John 1, 14 says, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. This is also the incarnation of Jesus in the Gospel of John. See, John is correcting the false teaching that people were saying Jesus wasn't really God. He was a good man. He was a prophet, maybe. He did great things, but God? No. It's a, it's a, it's a frame of thought that had occurred into the third century, and it's happening now. That Jesus wasn't God. He was just a good man. And people were being persuaded to believe that God created Jesus, and thus Jesus was not God. But Jesus is not a created being. Jesus was there with God in the very beginning. And when he came to earth in flesh, it was the incarnation of God into man. But Jesus is the revelation of God. He's God in human flesh. He's, John is saying, look who Jesus is and see what he's done. And the point of this verse is that God has come to us. Emmanuel, God with us. God has come to us and we have, John's saying, we have seen and heard and touched him. And today, folks, there is a whole lot of Christians with a very small view of Jesus. A very distorted, small, deceived view of who, of who Jesus is. And as a result, we have a small and distorted and deceived view of how we follow him, of how to follow him. Yeah, we, we, we'll give you that Jesus was a good teacher. We'll give you that he did good things. We'll, we believe he existed as a man, but, but he was a, a teacher, a prophet. But Lord of my life? Lord of my marriage, Lord of my family, money, my time, my future? Uh-uh. No, my small view of Jesus will not let me have that huge commitment to him. And so we have to watch that. So I'm asking you, is Jesus just a good teacher to you? Is he just a prophet? Is he just a wise man? And here's where I'm talking about there were deceived people at the time John wrote this who believed they were followers but who were exposed as not being followers because of their perception of who Jesus was. So, who is Jesus to you? Who is Jesus to you? Or is he truly Lord and Savior of your life? Is he Lord and Savior of your life? Because if Jesus is who he says he is, God become man, then the implications for each one of us are huge. Huge implication. We are no longer running the show. We don't determine right and wrong. 
We don't determine justice. We don't determine what's sin and what isn't. The, the philosophies that say everybody has their truth, just do your truth and I'll do mine, we can't do that. Because if Jesus is God and he said what's what, then we have to do that. We have to adjust our lives to see eye to eye with him. So the implications are huge. Moving to verse 3, 1 John 1, verse 3. John writes, We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Here, the word for fellowship is koinonia. Koinonia. And you may have heard that word. In fact, there's been Bible studies named koinonia and, and things like that. It, what, it, what it means, it's, it's this personal experience of sharing something significant in common with other people. It's that pleasure that's derived from being with those with whom you're in unity, with whom you see eye to eye. It is a pleasant association. It is one based on unity. So, what I want you to do is underline fellowship and then write koinonia in the margin. K-O-I-N. K-O-I-N. O-N-I-A. O-N-I-A. Koinonia. Koinonia describes the relationship that, that we have with our spouse. It describes the relationship we have with, with teams we work on. It describes those relationships we have with our small groups, with our triads. It describes the convictions and the essential beliefs that unite us as a church. The unity that we feel by seeing eye to eye is koinonia. That's koinonia. There is a huge danger of uniting based on experience versus uniting based on biblical accuracy. There's a huge difference in there, and it's a dangerous one. And exa examples of uniting based on experience. You have a supper club. You have a group of guys who get together to work out together. You're on a softball team. You're in a marriage as long as the sex is good. Those are, those are uniting things and, and, and fellowship experiences that are based on experience and they're based on shaky ground because all of those commonalities can change. But uniting based on biblical accuracy is like Charter Oak Church with our eight essential beliefs. They're not going to change. They're based on the Word of God and we unite together as a church because we see eye to eye on those. Or a small group doing ministry together based on the instructions in Acts chapter 2. That's a true koinonia experience. It's based on biblical accuracy. Or a marriage that stays together because it's recognized as a lifelong covenant with God. It's not about how attractive we find each other for years and years and years. It's not about the things we do for each other. It's not about, you know, anything other than the fact that marriage is a lifelong covenant with God. It is a metaphor for Christ and the church. And so these things are based on biblical accuracy, and they can last as long as we see eye to eye, as long as we have that unity. So we want to be a church. Charter Oak wants to be a church that's rooted in God's word, that's defending this truth and refuting false teaching. 
That's what unites us together. And again, in this verse, you can catch the words proclaim, seen, and heard, that these constant themes that John is bringing. And Jesus is offering us this fellowship, this koinonia relationship with him, and then through him with God. He's offering us that kind of relationship. But what has to happen is not that we make Jesus line up with what we think is right, not we make Jesus line up with what we think is truth, not make Jesus line up with how we want to live our lives. To have koinonia with Jesus and through Jesus, God, we have to change. We have to change to see eye to eye with his teaching. We have to change to, so that our lives come in conformance with his desires for us. That's what has to happen. If we trust him, then we have this fellowship with him and with God. And that fellowship comes only through Jesus Christ, through faith. Remember, way, truth, life? Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. We don't come with our truth. We come accepting his truth. Then we have koinonia relationship, fellowship with him. The beautiful thing is God hasn't left us alone. We are all sinners. We all deserve eternal separation from God, everlasting judgment. But he came to us, the incarnation in Jesus Christ. And he came for the cross. He came for the purposes of the cross. He said, I got to go to Jerusalem. The disciples were like, no, don't go there. It's dangerous. No, that's that's why I came. I've got to go to Jerusalem. I have got to go to the cross for you. And we nailed him to it. We nailed him to the cross, and he endured that horrible death for us because he loves us. He loves us in a way we will never be able to fully comprehend. If we flip a little bit ahead in 1 John 3.16, John writes, This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. That's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. He did it so that when we repent, which is when we turn from our sin and rebellion against God with sorrow, when we repent, when we believe and we put our faith in Jesus as Lord and God incarnate, not as a good man, but as Lord and God incarnate, then the way is made for us to have fellowship and intimacy with God. And that's what John is saying. And then finally, the short little verse 4. We finish up. We write this to make our joy complete. We write this to make our joy complete. John is saying that his joy and our joy is made complete by writing these things so that we can all share in the eternal life that's found through faith in Jesus. There is joy in that. There is joy in it. We lose it all the time because life bogs us down and we have so much to think about. But there is joy in our salvation. There is joy when we come to Christ. And there is joy when we see others come to Christ. Oh my gosh, there is no story I love to hear more than how someone came to Christ. To how somebody's long journey with someone, constantly witnessing, constantly supporting and loving them, results in finally them seeing Jesus in someone else, in that person, and they come to Jesus. They come to Jesus and they're saved. You talk about joy. What joy? By the way, Baptism, 
It's expression of joy. It is a demonstration, a, a proclamation of our faith in Jesus in a public way. And we're going to have another baptism Sunday in August. And if that's your next right step, if you have never been baptized, or if you were baptized as an infant, have no recollection of it, and want to remember your baptism, then go to the website, charteroak.church slash baptism, and register. And we'll baptize you right here on a Sunday in August. So think about that. We want to share in the joy of seeing people's faith. It is an amazing thing. So the action here, just circle joy. Circle joy. And as you circle joy, maybe you write it down, maybe you just think about it, but think about someone in your circle who doesn't have eternal life. Think about someone who doesn't know the everlasting joy of knowing Jesus, a family member or a friend you see pretty often or a coworker, and, and pray for them. Pray for them. Come together with them. Have fellowship with them. Enjoy them. Invite them to things. Invite them to church. Invite them to your small group. Invite them to a serving opportunity we have. Come around them. Pray for them. You can be a disciple maker. That's one of the six marks of a mature believer in Christ is someone. We want to be people who share the gospel with those who don't know Jesus. That is part of being a disciple is to be a disciple maker. Pray, God, would you please open their eyes and their hearts, open their minds to see you and your love, that love that is only found in Jesus. And God, give me boldness to share that life and that love with them. Give me boldness, because it's scary. It's scary, but we have to be open to the fact that God's going to make opportunities for us to share the gospel with that person, our one that we are having fellowship with. He's going to create opportunities. Give us the boldness, God, to step through that. So this is that joy. This is that joy. When we're investing in our one, our, we're investing in someone who doesn't know Jesus, who don't have a church home, but who make that decision to put their faith in Jesus. That's the joy we sing about. That's the joy that we have that is not circumstantial. We confuse it with happiness, which changes all the time. Things make us happy, and then things destroy that all the time. But joy, the fruit of the Spirit, joy, joy in our hearts from the Holy Spirit of God, joy from bringing someone to Jesus, joy from seeing the hand of God at work. That's true joy. That's the joy that lasts and perseveres through all of life's struggles. It doesn't mean you laugh and giggle when life is tough. It doesn't. But there is an abiding joy that stays with us as we go through life. And that's the joy of knowing those we love, the ones we love in this life, knowing that they truly know the love of Jesus. That's also the joy. Well, I hope this was helpful and instructive. This series is going to last most of the summer, so continue to bring your Bibles, your pens, continue to bring your open minds to what the, what the book of 1 John would teach us. Let's pray.